Okay, this is the eighth of our podcasts and the first of our electricity and magnetism podcasts. Oh, my favourite topic, electricity and magnetism. What I did my doctorate in. So, uh, loads of fun to be had with uh, these two. So, let's start with magnetism. Magnetism arrives from charge in motion. So, some atoms are so set up that their electrons uh, rotating around them add up and you end up with effectively a little tiny current running around those atoms and creating a magnetic field. And uh, the chief atom that we know does that is iron. So iron has its own magnetic field. It's called a magnetic moment. If we can get lots of iron atoms to line up, then we start to get a sizable effect. And where lots of iron atoms line up, we call that a domain. A domain you can think of as uh, roughly matching up with a crystal. So within a particular crystal, within a particular domain, we have all of our uh, magnetic moments on our iron atoms all lining up. And in a normal piece of iron, uh, we have domains um, all over the place, all pointing in all sorts of different directions. And so that's normal, unmagnetized iron. If we bring that unmagnetized iron into a magnetic field, the domains will start to line up in sympathy, and we will form a magnet of our unmagnetized iron, and the two magnets will attract each other. And it doesn't matter which way round the magnetic field of the attracting magnet is, the domains will line up to match so that uh, the magnet and the iron attract. So that's fairly straightforward. To get it to the domain to line up permanently, we need steel rather than iron. Because uh, within iron, the domains are able to relax back again into their random form as soon as you take the magnetic field away. If, however, we have a piece of steel and we force the domains all to line up, then they tend to stay lined up. In fact, it's quite hard to demagnetize steel. You can do it by heating it up until the domains have got enough energy to take up random orientations again, or you can do it by hitting it. Yep, if you hit a steel magnet repeatedly, eventually you'll give it enough mechanical energy for the domains to all lose their nice straight orientation and it for it to become demagnetized. Materials that are based upon iron are known as ferrous metals. That is, metals that contain iron. Iron has the chemical single Fe, so ferrous. And therefore, metals that don't contain iron are called non-ferrous. And so... Uh, normally, ferrous metals are magnetic and non-ferrous metals are not magnetic. So aluminium or copper, they aren't magnetic, they've got no iron in them. There are one or two other materials that uh, are magnetic, but you don't need to worry about them for your course. Now, what else do you need to know? Well, of course, you know what the field lines around a magnet look like. You know that the field lines are the magnetic field reaching out into space, and that North and South Poles attempt to join up via the field lines, and that's why things get attracted. And that when you're drawing field lines, you have to draw arrows on them that run from north to south. Uh, you know how to get that to show up. Um, we've done the experiment where you sprinkle iron filings, and you see that the uh, iron becomes magnetized and lines up along the field lines. Or you can do it with uh, plotting compasses, and get the plotting compasses to line up along the field lines being produced by our bar magnets 
um, or indeed by an electromagnet because of course uh, well, the problem with ordinary permanent magnets is that they struggle to have too high a magnetic field there's only a certain amount of magnetic field that any particular material can contain and the only way to get a stronger magnetic field is to build a bigger permanent magnet well with electromagnets you can get round that with electromagnets it just the just depends upon the number of coils of wire and the current running through that wire. You can strengthen electromagnets as well by having a bit of iron in the centre of them, but uh, mostly it's number of turns and the current running through those turns. So you can produce huge electromagnets that with whopping great big currents running through them. Something like the Large Hadrocollider will have magnets that have killer amps running through them, thousands of amps running through them in order to generate massive magnetic fields. Now the only way they can do that is with a type of material called a superconductor. So you make extremely strong electromagnets from superconductors. Um, uses for electromagnets, well of course you know about the relay, we'll come on to that as an electrical component, and the uh, doorbell where the uh, electromagnet attracts the arm back, uh, back and forth, um, so all those kinds of things, you know about big magnets that pick things up in car junkyards. There's the Large Hadron Collider, which we've mentioned already, and those MRI machines, Magnetic Resonance Imaging. They have huge superconducting magnets inside the MRI machine in order to be able to tell what's going on inside your body. You're listening to BCJ, Victoria College Chat. Next up, electrical charge. Well, we know that north and south magnetic poles attract and south and south, north and north repel. Well, same thing goes on with electric charges. Positive and positive repel, negative and negative repel, but positive and negative attract. You all know all about that. And you know that, of course, a positive charge is an absence of electrons and a negative charge is too many electrons because the positive bits don't tend to move around very much because they're the interior of the atoms, the nuclei, and they're rather stuck in place tends to be the electrons that are in motion and how do you get them to move well with some materials it's just purely friction friction between a piece of plastic and a piece of cloth can cause the electrons to move from the surface of the cloth to the plastic or the other way depending on which one of the two is uh, more electrophilic which one of the two prefers to have electrons attached to its surface and so we can build up charges we can also use the fact that we have built up charges to induce charges in other things. You remember we do an experiment where you bring a uh, bring a large charge close to a metal plate um, and then touch the metal plate with your finger, and you would think that that wouldn't cause anything any any charge to be transferred at all. And yet you take your finger away, you take the original charge away, and lo and behold you're left behind with some charge on your metal plate. The reason being that the large charge that you brought close to it displaced some of the charge within the metal plate, pushed away some of the electrons if it was a negative large charge you brought close. When you touch it, you give those electrons a chance to escape. They escape through you to what we call Earth and therefore we've actually left behind on our metal plate a net positive charge so when we take everything away you find there's a positive charge left behind that's electrostatic induction charge is measured in coulombs and again there are field lines 
running between them. The field lines run from positive charge to negative charge. Very much the same way as magnetic fields do. They never touch and they slowly bow away from one another, just like we did with the magnetic field lines. But this time they're running from positive to negative when you're drawing on your arrows. That's it for magnetism and static. Next up, circuit. So let's have a bit of music first. Go! 
songs on this website where people sing. Yes, it's another free play song. And um, yeah, I'm going to talk over the top of Derrin. I think he can fade away into the background. We are on to circuits now, and therefore our charge is no longer static. Our charge is in motion. It is current. Current is the flow of charge, and current is measured with an ammeter. Its units are amperes, named after Ampere, who first... Uh, did important work on electricity. So, Ampere, capital A. Amps is not a unit of electricity. Don't be tempted to write Amps. Write Amperes or capital A. Capital A is so much easier. Always write capital A. That's current. Current is the flow of charge. And so, current is also coulombs per second. Because we said in the earlier static chunk that charge was measured in coulombs, written with a capital C. So therefore, current is coulombs per second. But normally we write it as amperes, capital A. And current will flow when we connect up a complete circuit and we have some sort of power source in that circuit. Normally a power source is a battery. It can be other things. It could be a generator, it could be an AC supply. But as I say, normally it's a battery. But more properly, it's a cell because it'll only be a single piece and in physics we call a single uh, part of a battery a cell so normally it'll only be a cell I don't know why I'm having real problems with my microphone today if I have it too high you can hear me breathing if I have it too low it's continually catching against my shirt um, oh well I'm sure you'll put up with the odd click and bang as we go through this I'm sure there have been plenty in all of the other podcasts I'm just struggling a bit here okay where are we current yes of course current is uh, is charge divided by time so we could have a formula that said I because of course you remember that the symbol in formulas for current is I so we have I is equal to Q over T because in uh, formulas we write charge as Q so we have I equals Q over T or IT equals Q um, so that would be if we were working out how much charge had been transferred in a certain amount of time with a certain current we'd multiply the time and the current together and that would give us a charge in coulombs. And of course you remember that because electrons have got a negative charge, electrons actually travel in the opposite direction to the direction that we think of current as flowing. So we think of current as flowing from the long side in the symbol of a cell. It flows from the long side around to the short side, from the positive side around to the negative side. But actually electrons are negative, so they leave the negative side and they go to the positive side. So we have the direction that conventional current flows being the opposite way around to the direction that the electrons actually flow. A little bit of a subtlety doesn't turn up all that much apart from when you have to work out which way the current is being deflected when you've got electrons being fired across a tube. But that comes much later on. That'll probably be another podcast altogether. Um, For now, it's just that conventional current isn't actually the direction that the electrons themselves are flowing in. And we've mentioned a cell a couple of times. A cell will have a PD across it, a potential difference across it. And potential differences 
are the energy transfers that uh, occur in a circuit. So a potential difference across a cell will be the energy that the cell is providing to the circuit. We can also call that the EMF, the electromotive force, the energy being supplied to the circuit by the cell. EMF, or the PD across the cell, they're both measured in volts, like every other PD is measured in volts, named after Volta. Not Voltaire, he was a philosopher. Volta, with an A on the end, he was an Italian who built the very first uh, battery. So uh, a PD measured in volts, again, capital V. Volts, or capital V, usually we use capital V. And when we write volts in a uh, in an equation, we just write capital V. So much the easier one of the two to remember. For current, the symbol is I. The the symbol for the unit is a capital A, but for volts, the symbol of the quantity is V, and the symbol of the unit is V. Makes it easy. Remember, of course, that because potential difference is a difference in energy between one side of something and the other side of something, a voltmeter must always be connected across two sides of something. We can think of it as always being connected in parallel. We'll talk a bit more about parallel later. It's always connected on one side and the other side of whatever it's measuring. It doesn't sit in the main loop of the circuit. An ammeter sits in the main loop of the circuit. A voltmeter sits outside measuring across whatever device it is that we're interested in the PD of. And nine times out of ten, the device that we're interested in the PD of is a resistor. A resistor's job is to sit there and turn electrical energy into heat energy. As we pass a current through a resistor, the resistor heats up, because the electrons strike the atoms of the resistor, cause them to vibrate, and of course we know that vibration is heat, and so the resistor gets hotter. Um, all things have a little bit of resistance, well apart from superconductors, but they're not on your course. All normal things have a little bit of resistance, copper wire has a little bit of resistance, but it's too small for us to ever worry about, whereas the uh, resistance of a resistor is deliberately large, and you buy resistors in particular sizes for the particular job you're looking for them to do. You can actually think of them as limiting the current in a circuit, because they resist the transfer of charge through them and so they will slow the current down. They will reduce the amount of current in a circuit if you put enough resistors in there. So resistors, normally they're the things that we measure the PD across and we measure the current through and the PD across a resistor and we obtain a very important law, it's called Ohm's law and Ohm's law says that the potential difference is equal to the current multiplied by the resistance usually written as V equals IR. So we can find a value of a resistor by measuring the PD across it in volts, measuring the current going through it in amps, and if we do the volts divided by the amps, we obtain the resistance, and the unit for resistance is ohms, capital omega. You know what an omega looks like from the watches, no doubt. So capital omega, ohms. Uh, don't forget to stick it on when you do any calculations for resistance, because you lose marks if you don't put the correct units on the end of it. But Ohm's law, incredibly important, holds in pretty much all situations, and you have to do lots of calculations involving Ohm's law uh, to work out how much current is flowing in a circuit, or what PD is across a particular resistor. You'll be given two of the things that are in Ohm's law, and you have to find out the third one. There are two sorts of circuits, series circuits and parallel circuits. For serious circuits, everything is one after another. 
for parallel circuits the various components are put together in parallel with one another. Um, the rules for series and parallel are very slightly different. The resistance in series circuits add up. So the total resistance in the series circuit is just all the resistances added together. And so you can work out total current and total PD by adding up the resistances give you total resistance. In a series circuit, the PDs in a series circuit also all add up. So the PDs in a series circuit all add up to the supply EMF. The current in a series circuit, on the other hand, is the same anywhere. So in a series circuit, it doesn't matter where you stick the ammo, so you will get the same result wherever. Parallel circuits, a bit different. Parallel circuits, it's the current that adds up. So the currents in parallel circuits add up to give you the supply current, the current that your cell is producing, whereas the PDs across each parallel branch are exactly the same as the supply EMF. So PDs are always identical across parallel circuits, whereas the currents can be different depending on the resistors involved, and the currents add up to give you the supply current. So it's almost completely the opposite way around. Now, what do you do with the resistances in parallel circuits? If I wanted to find the total resistance of a parallel circuit, well, I don't add up the resistances, I add up the conductances. And conductance is the opposite of resistance, it's the reciprocal of resistance, 1 over R. So if I want to know what the resistance of a parallel circuit is, I add up the 1 overs of all of the resistances. So 1 over the first resistor, plus 1 over the second resistor, plus 1 over the res third resistor. I add those up, and they're equal to 1 over the total resistance. So I take 1 over again, or I put the whole thing to the power of minus 1, is the way I've discussed doing it with my class, and we end up with the total resistance. So for series circuits, the total resistance is equal to the total resistors added together. For parallel circuits, the total conductance is equal to all of the conductances added together. And if you want to know resistance, you've got to take the reciprocal. Don't leave your answer as conductance, it won't be the right answer. And then having worked out what the total resistance in a circuit is, maybe even you've got a circuit that's made of bits that are parallel and bits that are series, and you've got to work out what the resistance of the parallel bits are and then add that to the series bits in order to get a total resistance. Once you've got a total resistance, normally you'll know what the uh, supply EMF is, and so you can find out what the current flowing around the entirety of your circuit is by dividing the supply EMF by the total resistance and that will give you the total current flowing. Don't forget to put a capital A on the end of it. So that's a very very fast whiz through um, series and parallel. It's not an easy one to do with you by talking at you. It's one that you've really got to see on a bit of paper in front of you. So I've only whizzed through that very swiftly. Well I'll perhaps do a very little bit more on it in the next podcast which will be more electricity.